With that, I would like to read God's word. Matthew 27, starting at verse 57 and reading through the 10th verse of chapter 28. Hear now God's glorious and imperishable word. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, for rising from the dead, and Holy Spirit, for applying the finished work of our Savior to us. Lord, may we today gain a new appreciation for the fact that our Lord Jesus is living. pray this in his name. Amen. While I was in college, I had already become a believer. I was in college really pursuing the ministry. I was sure that I trusted in the Lord as my Savior and I was sure that it is God who saved me. There is no amount of work that I ever did, not even in choosing him. He chose me, grabbed me, imposed his grace upon me. I knew I was saved. Yet, like everyone, I still had those questions and those doubts in my mind, especially given uh, just thinking about all the different points of view in the world, all the different religions, all these different well-meaning people who believe something different. And that always, I struggle with that. I didn't doubt my salvation But I just wondered how it is that so many people, seemingly smart people, can believe in so many different things. At least from my perspective, that's the way it looked. Then there was a missionary conference that we had at our school. And there was a particular missionary who intrigued me. He was an African man who was Muslim, had become a Christian, and now was a Christian missionary, going and telling others about the Lord Jesus. And I remember one student asking, why have you become a Christian? 
And he was asking from the human perspective, what would have made you? We know that God is who saves us, but what would made you a Christian rationally? What went through your mind? And he answered something I've never, ever forgotten. It's given me great encouragement today as I think about it. He said this, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road, and suddenly the road forked in two different directions, and you didn't know which way to go. And there at the fork in the road were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? It's still that simple. I want to cut right to the chase. It is that simple. Uh, my dad would always ask our neighbor for help in fixing the car because he always saw my neighbor under the hood of his car. But I said to him one time, Dad, did you ever notice that his car is never running? I mean, he's under it, and he'll give you advice, but it's never running. Why would I ask of these people for all their well-meaningness? Why would I ever ask them for guidance in life? They're dead, and they're still dead, whereas Jesus Christ stands in stark, stark opposition in that he not only rose again, we tend to think in terms of our last vision of Jesus as he's risen, he's alive, he's still living. None of these others are. In fact, I studied this after hearing him say this, and we had different classes that studied or looked at different world religions, and I started to gather in my mind all the founders and what they said about those religions and those faiths. Because after all, I wanted to at least understand what is their message. And even though I noted something very distinct, all the messages of the religions of the world seem to gather around these two things. Either it's a good work situation where if you live with virtue, then you'll be rewarded. Or in the more Eastern type religions, you had this kind of, we're one with the universe. There's no one right or wrong kind of the force, so to speak. And it's either those two kinds of things, both basically saying you're okay in the end when you weigh it out. Whereas in stark opposition, you have Christianity, which claims us to be sinners in need of a Savior. And then the Savior comes and vicariously, he takes this, our sin on him. He dies in our place and lives. It's a totally unique message. It is not moralism and it's not oneness with the Spirit. It's, it's a vicarious substitutionary atonement by our Lord Jesus. Starkly different. But the message aside, just consider, just the founders, those who held those positions. The first one I looked at was this Zoroaster guy, because I thought it was a cool name. Zoroaster. Zoroastrianism is essentially kind of this Eastern idea where it worships the different objects of nature as though they're gods, and the idea is to attain some kind of godhood. But do you know that even the founder, he died. Everyone knows he died. No one's debating it. They even some people say where he's buried. And after his death, it was written about him that his soul attained the utmost level of the bounteous immortal, but still not merged with the divinity. So the founder of that religion didn't even himself attain any kind of divinity or any surety. And guess what? This is really the bottom line. For as interesting, as creative, and as many followers as he has, one major problem. He died, and he's dead. What advice can I really take from someone who died and no longer speaks? How can someone tell me how to live when they're dead? Then you go to Buddha, and Buddha really covers a lot. Not only are there millions of adherents today to Buddhism, today's modern, uh, the Unity Church, or the Unitarianism, are basically rooted in this kind of thinking. Buddha himself was an interesting character. He said, and they know he died, uh, but they can't pinpoint the year exactly, uh, but his remembrance of thousands of past lives are interesting. I remember reading a book that was translated into English that in his mind he uh, had a record of 357 past lives, some as human, some as a god, 123 as an animal, he says. And after he died, and I stress died, uh, he, he ate some poison food and died, uh, he was buried. And there is actually a place that has a tombstone where he is buried. My point, again, once more, is that he's an interesting man, very inventive, creative, many, many millions of followers, but a problem. He died. He's dead. What advice can I get from someone who is dead about living? 
Then there's Confucius. Confucius says, and, and so forth, and you bust open the little fortune cookie, and there's Confucius telling us this thing or that thing. Born to a poor family, lived about 500 years before Jesus. I searched out what it is he said, very similar to what Buddha said, just sounded a little bit more quippy, uh, a little more, you could capture some of what he said. It's very interesting, very commonsensical, very interesting, very inventive, many followers, but there's a problem. He died, he's dead. Then there's Muhammad, for all that is said about Muhammad. In fact, it is said in the Quran that he, su he supersedes Jesus. Wow, that's amazing, considering he's dead. He died. You could see his tombstone. His writings are not even accurate, historically. There's a major problem. When we look for answers to life, to spiritual life, we all know we live far beyond these short years we live on. There's a stark problem when we go to people who are dead for the answers and have not figured it out themselves. In the American versions, you can think of all that we have. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, the two founders, really it's Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, which is a, a very skewed uh, version. And people will call it Christianity. It's not at all. It takes this book that was made up in the mind of this man, uh, again, very inventive, very creative, but he died in jail. Uh, you probably heard some of the stories about how Illinois apologized this month to the Mormons. Uh, Joseph Smith, a uh, teller of tall tales, was shot in the back at age 38, and guess what? He's dead. He died. There's still a, there's a tombstone where Joseph Smith lays. Brigham Young, his successor, married more women. 27 times he was married. Uh, survived by 17 wives and 57 children when he died. He's dead. He's still dead. Then there is Christian science, a more, uh, more recent development, which actually Mary Baker Eddy tried to combine the Bible with certain spiritual ways of healing and tried to make the Bible look like this kind of physical, spiritual healing book. And you still see the books, that the reading libraries you can go into today, and all of it talks about how uh, to make yourself healthy and whole spiritually and physically using homeopathic medicine and so forth and so on. And it's interesting, and considering what's so interesting about it is that she wrote about spiritual healing, and guess what? She died. She's dead. There's a tombstone with her name on it. And more recently, something that combines what I would say Christian science with even uh, an Eastern-type religion like Buddhism is Scientology, which you've heard a lot about because there's a lot of celebrities that all of a sudden are Scientologists, which is really a modified version of the force and this idea of this all-surpassing force that man has created good and only bad things come forth for men because of our environment. If we just change the environment, we'll be better and we'll be one with this eternal spirit, so to speak. L. Ron Hubbard is the one who is the founder of such a thing. And guess what? In 1986, he died. He's dead. And despite the fact that they're still fighting over his personal fortune, the tombstone still remains and his body is still there. My point in naming all of these things as I've gone through it in my own mind, I still, to this day, everyone has a doubt from time to time. Just analyze for a moment the fate of those who claim these other messages compared to the fate of the one who has given you life and still has life as we meet here today. There are multiple witnesses to these people's death. In fact, none of these people, for all they said, claim to be deity or claim to be able to come back from the dead. None of them, not a one. Not one has been raised. They're all dead. Most of them, you can see their tombstones. But Jesus, on the other hand, 
He rose again from the dead, and brothers and sisters, he's living today. And that's what I want to spend our time contemplating, is that he's living today. In fact, the gospel's not complete with just the image of his ascending into heaven. That's part of his exaltation. I would submit to you that our proper holistic image of our Lord Jesus is his current session at the Father's right hand. And I'm not saying we should do away with the images of him dying on the cross for us or seating, sitting at the seat of sinners like us talking and sharing with us. I'm not saying we should do away with that or his ascension. But understand what he is now is what I would like us to concentrate on on this Easter Sunday. What he is now. His exaltation, traditionally, we say it consists of these things. He rises again. He's exalted in his resurrection. He ascends into heaven before those who are gathered. Then he is seated at the right hand of his father called his heavenly session. It's an active one, which we'll look at in a moment. And it will culminate in his physical return in ushering in the new kingdom, the eternal state. But here is a very simple question for us today that will help us when we discover the answer. Where is Christ now? Where is he now? What is he doing there? And why does it matter? Let's answer those things together. First of all, turn with me to Hebrews 1. And I will have uh, references to several passages. So whatever you're comfortable with, if it's just easier for you to listen, I'll try to talk slower than I normally do, which is difficult, which is normal person speed. But Hebrews 1, open there, and keep your New Testament open. We'll be flipping around there if you'd like. Otherwise, I'll try to read in a way that you could follow the text or even mark down the verses. Where is Christ now? As you're turning there, remember that he appeared several times to his followers after he rose again. A 40-day period, there are several very poignant and memorable connections he made with his people. Mary Magdalene at first, the women returning from the tomb, Peter later in that same day, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you recall, then to the apostles without Thomas, and then a week later, the apostles with Thomas. Uh, these uh, People sometimes wonder, why, why not as many times, or why didn't he just dwell with them the whole time? Because these moments were meant to be very impressionable when he came, especially when Thomas was there. Then, of course, at Galilee, he ate breakfast. He cooked breakfast for the disciples uh, on the mountain with the apostles and 500 believers. At Jerusalem and Bethany, uh, again to James, he shows himself. And then at Olivet, before his ascension, he gives a, a sermon, if you will, as he leaves. So there are many post-resurrection appearances. But where is he now as he ascended into heaven? Hebrews 1, verse 3. Look there with me. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Christ today? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And this is especially important for us today, as we sometimes have a distant view of our Savior, or maybe an aloof view of our Savior, that we understand how active he is, seated at the right hand of his father. In fact, Hebrews makes use of this really prophetic psalm. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And Jesus fulfills this. And when he comes to heaven, God the Father sits him at his right hand and then makes his enemies a footstool, which we'll look at more in a moment. But let's consider two phrases. What does it mean to be seated at God's right hand first? Now you know that God's right hand is figurative. God doesn't have hands and feet. It's a figurative statement uh, that, in a way, stoops so that we can understand what it means with regard to Jesus' place with the Father. Uh, being a ruler, or being at a ruler's right hand, rather, denotes power, honor, nearness. Really, vividly, think about this. The king is sitting on his throne. What do you do with your right hand? And no uh, offense to those lefties in the house, but righties have always been the, the predominant uh, hand. 
And so the right hand is used here as a hand of strength. It's the, the hand that the king would use to wield a scepter. It's the hand that the king would use to wield a sword. So if you're sitting at the king's right hand, is it not true that you have the power to stop his hand from raising the scepter? Figuratively, anyways, or at least theoretically, you could stop his hand from wielding the sword. By a king sitting someone at his right hand is a statement of putting them on equal level because they could actually stop, theoretically, a judgment from that king's hand. Seated, seated at the right hand is profound. Jesus has been exalted to that level. In Hebrews, later in the book of Hebrews, it says in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? In other words, he's never said that to anyone else. Only Jesus is on equal level with the Father so that he might be seated at the right hand of God the Father. The way I can best understand this personally is from my uh, soccer playing days in college. I played uh, through my college years, and in my junior year, I hurt my knee. They didn't think it was that bad kind of thing where they had me rehab and rehab through the spring season. Well, when I got into the summer training, it was clear that the cartilage was, was broken pretty badly and needed to do surgery. Well, this is just a month before the season now. So I have surgery on it, never really recovered from it right. Season started. It was a difficult year. It was supposed to be, you know, your best year, your final year. And instead, I ended up basically filling a utility role on the team. Now, it would have all been lost in my mind if it weren't for something interesting that developed between myself and my coach. My coach was not a player's coach. He was a disciplinarian for sure. He didn't need any help coaching. He, uh, he wouldn't take any, and he didn't need any. He had already won two national titles before he came to our school in Division II level, and he went, has won two more since I left. Maybe since I left is the reason why he's won two more. But at any rate, he's very successful as far as titles go. He's won the coach of the year at least 10 times in the last 30 years of his career. And so this is not a man that needed a lot of help from anyone. But he and I developed a relationship in that last year as he saw me on the sideline and it was sort of, he, he, he could understand how I felt about that, how difficult it was. And he would say to me, Tony, come with me. And we would walk on the sideline while he was coaching and the team would sit one place and about 50 yards away would be coach wearing out a spot in the grass, just constantly walking back and forth, 15 yard period, just walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he called me, he said, come walk with me. And in those discussions we had, we would talk about the game and the strategy. Was it working the way it should have? Should we move this person to that place? Tony, do you think Ken is handling that guy all right over there? Should we put another person there? Is Marco ready to come out? And he would go through this, this litany with me of questions. And I'm thinking, this is a guy that I respect more than anyone as a coach. And he's asking me for input. In fact, many times I would note something to him and he'd make a change in the game. He put me at his right hand. At his right hand. I had a near relationship with him. I had a certain level of power that he gave to me. There was a nearness I had with him. God the Father, after Jesus' perfect work, is totally satisfied in what his son does. It says, sit at my right hand. That's what it means. That's where Jesus is, seated at his right hand. And guess who is united to Christ? Seated at his right hand. Guess who's united? If you trust in the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation, that is an evidence of your being in union with Christ. So in essence, he's placed you in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, as Paul says to the Ephesians, seated at God's right hand. That is where Jesus is. But let's look also at this term seated or sitting for a moment. He's sitting at God's right hand. Now for me, sitting means kicking back in a recliner and watching a game. That is not, that is a passive view of sitting. That is not what it means when Jesus is seated at the right hand, right hand of the Father. He's not watching dispassionately. He's not sitting there as if to say, my job is done, I'm going to kick back now. Yes, there's a sense in which it means rest in this way, compared to what his life was like in the Garden of, Garden of Gethsemane. Think of that for a moment. The stress, the 
the weight of all the sins of all his people coming upon him that he was going to carry to the cross, sweating drops of blood, that turmoil he was through, unrest, but now he rests, seated at the right hand of the Father. But don't mistake that for being lazy. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 10 for a moment, you will see a picture that really illustrates what it means to be seated by his Father or sitting. Hebrews 10, in the 10th verse, it starts this way. And and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now look closely at verse 11 and see the comparison between Jesus sitting and what the priests are doing. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Do you see it? When you're standing, you're in the mode of a servant. You have to be ready because you have to keep doing it over and over and over again, your job is never done. Standing denotes readiness. You've got to be ready to serve because it's not over. Satisfaction has not been made. It's the stance of a servant. That's what was true for the priests. They can offer bulls and goats, bulls and goats, bulls and goats, but it would never take away the sin once and for all. So they had to stand ready. But look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Do you see the comparison? One is standing because it can never make atonement. But the one who sits has made atonement. It is finished. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In effect, the Father says to the Son, after his glorious, satisfying work on the cross, congratulations, sit You've completed your redemptive work. And this is a mystery that I cannot fathom. Christ in his glorious body, have you thought of this for a moment? He took on flesh. You know, he hasn't taken off flesh. I don't understand the nature of his glorified body and that he could walk through walls, but at the same time, Thomas could feel his hands. It's a picture of what our glorified body will be. I can't explain that to you. But here is the physical somehow enthroned in heaven, seated with his father with the holes in his hands and his feet still there to remind all of us, even God the Father, figuratively, of course, of the perfect work of Christ done on our behalf. What a difference this picture is, seated at the right hand of the Father from the one we have in the garden. And I would just say before moving on that this should transform our view of worship. In other words, we're so, e- so easily caught into thinking of our times of worship as Jesus being with us, seated with us as sinners. And praise God, he does that with us. And the picture of him in the Gospels is a true picture, obviously. But let's not get so enthralled with that that we forget that where he is now, right now, is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I hope that changes our view of worship, the seriousness with which we approach the throne. It's a serious endeavor. He's not just our buddy. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's been seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he hears us when we pray. He hears us when we sing. He pays attention when we worship. So how serious are we about our worship? It's a good question when we consider where he is. He's seated at the right hand of his Father. This Easter Sunday, let your image of God be an exalted one. Your image of Jesus be an exalted one. He rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Never say those words again, passively. Well, This image of being seated next to God the Father with honor, power, and glory, wielding authority, if you will, can make us think he's aloof if we just think in terms of a human king. But look with me at something else that occurs. 
what is Christ doing? We ask the question, what is he doing? We know where he is. What is he doing, and why does it matter? The first thing, and in numerous verses, we know that he is ruling from that place with his father. <clears throat> now, you need not turn there, or you can turn there, because we'll look at it in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, listen closely what it says in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's ruling now by God's uh, appointment. Uh, in, in Philippians, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all names. So his first task, as he sits at the right hand of his father, is to assume that rulership over the earth with his father. And think of it this way. What a homecoming. God, the son, takes on flesh, leaves his father's throne, takes on flesh, comes and lives the life that he lives before us in the New Testament. And then after completing the work with the holes in his hands and his feet in his side, he ascends, he reassumes his pre-incarnate glory sitting at the right hand of his father. What a homecoming that is when he comes and reassumes his place of enthronement. He's ruling with his father there. But also, please note that he is subduing his enemies with his father. In that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, God has put all things into subjection under his feet. So all things are put under his feet as a footstool, like Psalm 110 says in the author of Hebrews. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So there's this work that Jesus is doing while he is seated, or seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling, but he's also acting to subdue his enemies unto himself. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, that is God the Father, says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Psalm 110 verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In Hebrews 2, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, and that's important. At present, we do not yet see everything that is in subjection to him. Now it can be depressing when you look at the, the times in which we live. And frankly, I would say that the church in general in the U.S. is sick. It's not at full strength. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, there's, there, people are coming to churches, churches are growing. This morning, there's probably thousands of people going to church around Kansas City. Whatever you do, don't fall into the trap of judging the strength of the church with how many people are showing up for church or church growth. That is never the mechanism we should use to see how healthy the church is. I would submit to you the way you note how healthy the church is is by first noting what is a purpose, is to worship God and to be salt and light, correct? Well, if it's salt and light, then let's look at the culture's morality, then you can tell how strong the church is. Well, the culture is a culture. You say, yes, but if we are salt and light, it only takes a few, and we're not even talking mass numbers, only a few who are living obediently, living in response to Christ's command to us, only a few can make a huge difference. I know this because I remember working in different places where there would be one believer in a, in a, in a department of 40 people, and when that one person wasn't there, just, just the, the talk, just the language that was used in that group just plummeted when that one person wasn't there. When that person was there, it just changed. The office was different. This, this was key to me when I was young in the faith, looking and seeing what the difference was between Christians and those who were not. What, so I'm not talking about mass numbers, but if the church is faithful 
in the little things and within itself and then reaching out, then you will see that impact on culture. And that's what tells me that the church is sick today in America. But it's not sick on the earth. And it hasn't stopped growing. Christ is still, still subduing. I will admit freely, I'm very literally optimistic about that subduing. I think it's really what Jesus is saying, or what's being said there is really what's going to happen. He's going to subdue. He's going to make the enemies a footstool. Now, his time moves forward. But even if you take that figuratively, that, you, that is, you think this is a spiritual dominion he's exacting, we still agree that he is working to draw unto himself all those who have been given to him by the Father. And he's subduing the earth by calling people to himself and giving the church more and more influence in the capturing of those who are God's and in the judgment of those who are not. So he is subduing his enemies with his Father now as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Don't let polls discourage you. Don't let what's happening right here discourage you. We're less than a billion people here. There's six billion on the planet. And I am told by reliable sources who are there that a place like China, for instance, where you think it's all suppressed, is just burgeoning with the gospel. So don't be fooled into thinking that he is not still subduing his enemies to himself with his father. He's ruling. He's subduing from the right hand of God. He's also receiving worship right now. Uh, he received worship when he was on earth, when people came and hugged his feet. He never told them to stop. And he continues to receive it. Philippians 2, 9 and 11, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And very vividly to me is the picture of earth worshiping him right now, that other people speaking different tongues than we are, they have different languages, they are able to also worship the Lord Jesus. And we are simply joining in the heavenly chorus of holy, holy, holy. He is worthy to pick up the scroll. The lamb that was slain is worthy to pick it up and open the scroll. And for eternity, there are angels who created to do nothing but say that. And when we worship him, we join in with that worship that is present. So he's receiving worship as he's seated at the right hand of his Father from us, from the heavenly host, and from those who have preceded us. Hebrews 12, verse 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. He receives our worship even now as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But finally and most personally, and what I hope resonates with you today, this Easter Sunday, is that he is interceding for us. Not that he interceded, past tense, he is interceding for us. When Jesus ascended to God the Father's right hand, he reassumed his pre-incarnate glory and enthronement. But that's not all. He took on a new role. Because when he left the throne, he didn't have those holes in his hands and his feet and his side. But when he returned to his throne, he did. And that work continues in this way. He now takes on the high priestly ministry. We don't need a priest on earth because our priest is in heaven. And those holes in his hands and his feet and his sides speak to his sacrifice for us. He now takes on an intercessory role. And what's the first thing Jesus does when he gets to the throne? He sends the Spirit. The very first thing. When I go, I will send the Spirit. And that's what he does. As he ascends... Not many days from then, he then sent the Holy Spirit. What a loving Christ that he would be ascended. His first act 
is to send us the Holy Spirit, to bring to our memory those things that he taught us, to seal our hearts, to seal our lives to him, to apply his work. That's his first act. But he has a continuing act that has not stopped. In fact, his interceding for us is forecasted in John 17 when Jesus prays, and he prays this for you. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays that we would be with him, with his father. In Hebrews 6, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Ephesians 2, 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.34, who, uh, who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And finally, Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Buddha does not always live to make intercession for anyone. He's dead. Mohammed is dead. Name all those people I named. They don't live to make intercession for anyone. They can't. If they could only do it for themselves, and they can't even do that. But we have one, he who always lives. That is he, it's personal. Always lives is perpetual. He always lives to make intercession for us. And that makes me, I, I think to myself, Lord, don't spend that much time on me. But he does. He always lives to make intercession. And you know what? Intercession is not begging the Father for anything. Sometimes you get the picture of he's our advocate in that Tony sins and he runs to the Father and says, I covered that with my, with my payment of the cross and he's constantly pleading with the Father on my behalf. That is not the picture of intercession Scripture paints for us. Total satisfaction the Father has with Christ. I don't think a word is spoken. If you look at atonement in the Old Testament, <clears throat> you think of the high priest, Aaron, on the Day of Atonement. He brought what? He brought the sacrifice with the blood dripping. Did Aaron say anything? No. He didn't say a word. What spoke? The blood spoke. So God the Son sits at the right hand of the Father when I'm sinning, when I choose to sin. And he intercedes for me by his mere presence and the completion of his work. That his grace is so great, it's far greater than all my sin. I want you to think for a moment of the worst sin in your life. One that you would never tell anyone. That you'd be horrified if I would just say what it is right now. Think of that sin. While you are sinning, while you volitionally choose to do that, God the Son stands making intercession for you. Now, if that isn't a motive for holiness, if that isn't a motive for repentance, I don't know what is. That the Son would still stand and intercede for you. He always lives to make intercession for us, that we be seated with him. Brothers and sisters, your prayers are heard. He intercedes by his mere presence and his worthiness. Let this compel us to look at life differently. Those other people I mentioned, while well-meaning, while many followers, while probably genuine in most cases, they are dead. When we're on that road and there's a fork, who do you look to? The one who's alive or the one who is dead for your direction? The blood of the Lamb has spoken and speaks today, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he's our Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed that you would take any time whatsoever for us. But yet, on top of just thinking that, the Lord Jesus is living now, interceding for us by his presence, his worthiness, 
his righteousness for ours. Lord, we are overwhelmed by what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. And it's all about you. Yet we receive so much. Make us new. Make us obey you now as we consider what you have done for us. When we're about to commit that sin that we have in our mind, our heart, allow us to have a glimpse of what you have done so that we might sin no more. I pray, Father, that this would bring glory to you and that your church would use to be salt and light in this world that desperately needs the message, the clear message of the gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.